This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 20th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Lindsay and Eric, this week we heard about two potential advances in treating and preventing COVID-19 that take advantage of immune responses. So can we talk today about what we hope to see from these and what we can expect in the days ahead? Several companies have announced that they're developing monoclonal antibodies, and this week one issued a press release that reported that the antibody they've made can neutralize virus in a tissue culture model of infection. Clearly, there's a lot more to do, but how would such antibodies be used? Well, Steve, you can think about antibodies in two different ways. One is as therapeutics, and one is for prevention, in similar to inducing an endogenous immune response to prevent infection. We use lots of monoclonal antibodies for therapies of other diseases, though not commonly for infectious diseases. But it's very similar to the idea of using convalescent plasma, which a lot of people are pursuing right now. Eric and Steve, as you both know, I'm involved with the NIH in developing vaccines and monoclonals. And that the monoclonal antibody pathway with HIV in particular over the last five, eight years has been a very encouraging strategy to be able to neutralize the virus. And so that's very attractive because we can, through a variety of molecular biologic techniques, develop B cells or antibodies that can neutralize specific viruses. And that's an attractive strategy. It's analogous to developing a drug that could attack a pathogen, but trying to mimic what the immune system does. What occurs in tissue culture and what occurs in vivo in people is a big jump, and that needs to be crossed to understand the real potential of these types of therapies. What do we know about how effective convalescent plasma therapy can be? Well, we certainly know that convalescent plasma can be used in some diseases. In fact, it was developed in the 19th century, and there was a Nobel Prize given out for convalescent plasma in 1901. So it's been around for a long time. But we don't know about convalescent plasma for this disease. There aren't any well-controlled trials yet. There are only small case series using it. But convalescent plasma, while it's a very attractive therapy, having antibodies that are able to block viral entry or block some important viral functions, might really make a difference. It's a bit complicated. The reason we use convalescent plasma is because they're around and they're easy to get, and there are lots of people who've recovered from the disease. But we know that every plasma sample varies from every other one. So they're sort of a non-standardized reagent, and that makes it a little bit difficult to interpret results from trials. The beauty of convalescent plasma is that We've given plasma therapy for lots of diseases for more than a century. So we know that it's safe and it's very easy to move into trials as opposed to, as we'll talk about, I assume later, uh, as opposed to monoclonals where there's a lot more safety testing involved. When I think about convalescent plasma, it really is FFP, fresh frozen plasma, something that is a routine reagent that we give to patients all the time for clotting disorders, surgical bleeding, a variety of settings. What's different about convalescent plasma in the setting of post-COVID infection and recovery is we're trying to enhance it for immune responses, humoral immune responses against SARS-CoV-2. And when I think about it, how is this different than giving FFP or 
tetanus immune globulin, measles immune globulin, rabies immune globulin, VZV immune globulin, all sorts of immune therapies that we've looked at for decades in different ways. Immune globulin for those pathogens is not quite the same because it is enhanced for the immune response against that pathogen, but it's still the same concept of harvesting the immune response of an individual who's recovered, whether it's by harvesting the plasma or somehow enhancing it for an immune property against a pathogen, work that's underway on both fronts. But conceptually, it's using one person's protective immune response, or so we think it's an element of the protective immune response, to help another who hasn't yet had time to develop a protective immune response. But Eric, as you said, we don't actually know what's in each unit of convalescent plasma because each person may have been exposed to a slightly different amount of virus, may have a different genetic background, a different amount of an immune response, may have had a different prior history of coronavirus or other infections that may predispose to certain types of immune response so that the fresh frozen plasma is actually a stew of humoral immune responses rather than a targeted immune response. And that complicates the interpretation of any given study without being able to standardize what we think the protective response is in a given unit, which is what the monoclonal concept is trying to do, but that then uses pharmaceutical grade generation of the compound as opposed to the poly response that any one of us generates. Um, Lindsay, you know, of course, this is not a criticism of convalescent plasma. It's a very interesting approach and something that certainly people should be trying right now. As we said, you can try it almost off the shelf right now so that you can rapidly study that reagent. Um, as you suggest, there's some attraction to monoclonals, which are much more uniform sort of reagent. And what this can potentially do is if convalescent plasma does have a benefit does it then provide insight that an antibody response is a critical element of protection? It won't tell us which element. It doesn't say that it's only the antibody response. But if it does have a therapeutic benefit, it actually provides some biologic insight as to what are some of the key elements for protection, which also provides insight into developing monoclonals and to developing vaccines, because it provides elements of an immune response that may be shining a light on what's protective that can then be modeled around if it's defined properly. So where are we on the road to an effective monoclonal antibody? Well, we're at the stage of making them. There are many, many companies that are interested in making monoclonals and several that I know have produced monoclonals in early stages. Which ones are best remains a question. And I go back to the very beginning of what Lindsay said, while we can test things in vitro, like testing for neutralizing antibodies, that is antibodies that block the virus from infecting tissue culture cells, we don't know what's an important correlate of protection. And so I think we still need to explore that. In addition, there are a lot of variations in the monoclonal business. One can engineer the antibodies to have different properties, like extended half-lives or changing their interaction with different immune cells. And we don't know how much those variables will affect the eventual efficacy. But I would like to re-emphasize something that Lindsay already said, which is 
the beauty of these are that they're uniform, they can be produced in large quantities. And so once we find one or perhaps a cocktail of antibodies that do work, or assuming we can find some that work, we would have a reagent that would be widely accessible, if still very expensive. And intellectually, from my perspective, it does shine a light onto the target. What is the appropriate target to neutralize or impair the virus from causing disease? There's a biology element of understanding the spike protein or other elements of the virus that we think are important for its pathogenesis or the disease it causes. And then can that be targeted? And Eric was commenting on the antibody. There's the front end of the antibody and the back end. I think of the front end as sort of the Y part that is binding the antigen of interest, perhaps the spike protein. And the back end, which is what cells does it connect to and what influences its half-life. And these can all be manipulated in a way that can lead to therapeutic benefit if we're smart enough and do the right experiments systematically. What's attractive about the monoclonal antibody platform is this is a platform that can be easily transitioned to different pathogens by altering the front end, as I sort of described it. What is the antigen specificity? Assuming we know what that is for a given pathogen. And for this virus, even though we all have focused on this virus for the last two, three months, it's only been around for four or five months. So are thinking about the disease pathogenesis and what are the appropriate targets are still not fully mature and not fully tested, which is why all of these strategies, in my view, need to be moved forward quickly and studied in high quality manner to define what works. But the monoclonal antibody platform, in my view, is very attractive because you could swap in yellow fever, Ebola, Zika. You can swap in a different set of viral targets, if that makes sense, then the platform can be engineered. So you've talked about the possibilities in monoclonal antibodies. What are we looking for in the testing of those antibodies? That's a really good question. I think that for now, these in vitro correlates that are good guesses are the way to go. Now, we do know some things. There have been other monoclonals that have been developed for infectious agents, as Lindsay's described, particularly in the HIV field. So we know something about how these things work and how we can maximize their ability to bind virus and clear virus in the circulation. Now, it's important to point out that the HIV antibodies work, but they work very temporarily because HIV, which rapidly develops resistance to any given antibody, and yet these have been into people, so we have some idea. But the bottom line is these would have to undergo clinical efficacy testing in order to figure out whether or not they work. And there is, as of now, no good early correlate that we know is going to stand up in clinical trials. And I think in figuring out how it works, what's within the question, Steve, is for what? It can work to prevent. So I'm uninfected, I'm about to go get potentially exposed. Can I have antibody in my circulation that blocks the virus from setting up shop? Somewhat analogous to a vaccine, eliciting the antibody, instead we passively give the antibody. Or somebody could have illness, whether it's early illness or later stages of illness, and do we give it more like a drug where the person has replicating virus and we give them the antibody to treat the virus to clear it? and to prevent it from causing disease. 
So I think what's attractive is this type of strategy can be used in different settings, depending on what we think the medical need is, and also what population can be studied efficiently to demonstrate meaningful activity and clearly look to see if there are side effects. Remember, Steve, we do use antibodies as protective measures uh, routinely for other infectious diseases. For example, if someone is exposed to rabies or someone who is quite susceptible is exposed to varicella zoster virus, we give immune globulins. These are not monoclonal antibodies, but they're essentially antibodies with high titers directed against that agent so that those can, we know quite well, protect against infection. Absolutely. And for RSV, a monoclonal has been approved in certain infections in the little babies who get severe illness from it. So this is an area where we as a community have been using it for, as Eric said, a century since the Nobel Prize was awarded. And hopefully we're able to do it a little smarter these days with the advances in biotechnology. We also heard this week that one of the early vaccine candidates was able to induce neutralizing antibodies. So what does that mean? Well, it's good news that we can induce antibodies. It's not really a surprise because we knew from earlier studies we're able to induce antibodies to related coronaviruses. It is very early, though. Um, a vaccine has all of the issues that we talked about with antibodies or antiserum. We don't know what protection looks like. So the ability to induce antibodies is necessary, probably necessary but we don't know if it's sufficient to protect against disease. Now, I should say that vaccines are a little more complicated than giving antibodies or giving antisera because vaccines can induce a variety of different immune responses, both humoral and cellular. And it's conceivable that either or both could contribute to protection. And so we don't know which ones are going to be important and we probably are gonna to need to test. Now, there is, both good news and bad news in the history of this area. The viruses, the alpha coronaviruses, which are distant relatives of SARS-CoV-2 that cause in humans mostly upper respiratory tract infections, don't induce lasting immunity and they don't induce lasting immune responses. And it hasn't been easy to develop a vaccine against these viruses. However, the beta coronaviruses, there are only three of them right now in humans, MERS, SARS, and SARS-CoV-2, um, it does appear that you can induce long-lasting immune responses. The problem is for those other two diseases, for SARS and MERS, we don't know if they're long-lasting or if they are protective at all because people simply aren't exposed that often. And so I think that's going to remain a question for COVID-19. We've heard a lot, including what you've just been saying, about the long timeline that's needed to develop a vaccine. Why can't we proceed with efficacy testing right now? Well, I think that there's a big difference between therapies for people who are already sick and vaccines to prevent healthy people from getting sick. If you developed a therapy for people who are critically ill with COVID-19, then you are able to sustain a fair amount of toxicity in that treatment. Because if someone has a life-threatening disease, we're able to allow them to have some adverse effects from whatever the treatment does, and the risk-benefit ratio is favorable. For vaccines, it's much more difficult because the vast majority of people who receive them will be healthy, and most of them will never ever get sick with the virus. And therefore, the vaccines have to be very, very safe. The risk-benefit ratio is very different for these. 
So there's a lot of safety testing that must be done for a vaccine that is not as necessary for therapy. And that means very large numbers of people have to be treated in order to get over that safety question before we can even get good signals of efficacy. And I think that, Steve, with vaccines, you know, as Eric already alluded to, if a patient is sick in the hospital, one can give no treatment or potentially this new treatment. And what we've witnessed over the last six weeks are lots of new treatments being assessed in our patients who are quite ill with COVID. And that has allowed us to begin to see that some therapies work and the alternative of not treating is unacceptable to us. And so I think that that has allowed us to advance the drug development field, although not as quickly as we want, faster than it's been done in other settings. The vaccine field is to prevent. And as Eric has already uh, said, people are healthy. So by preventing something they don't have, we need to make sure we don't hurt them, that there's no obvious safety concern and immune responses that we think are protective or developed, and then go into phase three testing, and then having it uh, deliverable to the community, which requires manufacturing to scale and delivery to scale. And that scale is, what, 7 billion people? so that it becomes complicated as one gets to the actual delivery element. I think phase one through three testing can likely occur this year, or at least get started in the the phase three arena. But there's a difference between an efficacy trial and seeing the results of it, which will take several months, and actually being able to deliver to scale to the community, which will often take a year or two, as uh, many have commented in the community. Of course, we're all going to do everything we can to speed this up. But it wouldn't surprise me that efficacy phase three testing initiates very soon, as I know the NIH, BARDA, and many companies are moving as quickly as they can to develop things at risk to be able to launch these types of studies, which, as I said, hopefully start this summer. So how can we speed up this process and still maintain safety? What are the steps that we can accelerate? I think there are a limited number of ways to accelerate and maintain safety. One is through the regulatory process to say that we're going to rapidly review things that need to be reviewed and be able to move to next steps much more rapidly than we ordinarily would in a development process. And I think that one may be the easiest, although it's certainly not simple to make sure that we maintain safety. But in order to recruit enough patients to measure safety and to measure efficacy, it will take a while. In the end, perhaps the easiest thing to manipulate is what Lindsay referred to earlier, which is the process of producing, of manufacturing and distributing potential vaccines. The easiest way to accelerate that is to start early. But starting early means you start before you know whether or not the vaccine works. And that's a question of placing bets. And it is an expensive way to go, but this is a very expensive disease. So it may make sense to start placing some of those bets. I should say though, remember there are dozens, probably well over a hundred vaccine candidates out there. So placing those bets isn't so simple. And Eric, as you allude to, if we place the bets and manufacture to scale for 10 and one works, the other nine, those resources were spent 
and not necessarily a deliverable for the community. And we in society just have to decide that it's a small bet given the magnitude of the problem and the need to accelerate the timeline. I think one of the other issues, Steve, for conducting these vaccine studies is the actual manufacturing process, knowing what it is you want to make and then having the process to make it for the appropriate size of the clinical studies needed to demonstrate efficacy and how quickly can that occur with all the appropriate safeguards of manufacturing. And manufacturing vaccines, for the most part, is substantially more complicated than many drugs that are made. And so there are many elements of the process that have to be done extremely carefully, as all manufacturing should be, but that takes some time. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.